It's Daily Thunder, booming out the truth of Jesus Christ live every weekday morning from the Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado. To learn more, visit ellerslie.com. Well, if you have your Bibles, uh, we're going to be in Romans chapter 12, uh, at least partway through the message. Uh, last time when we got together, we were talking about this idea of uh, altars, and I, I mentioned we're just barely skimming the surface, uh, and it seems like this is one of those topics that can just go endlessly forever and ever and ever, amen. Um, but what I wanted to do is <clears throat> I wanted to look very specifically at one aspect um, of this idea uh, in terms of altars and as it relates to idolatry uh, and just kind of in this flow of the theme that w- of what we've been talking about. Uh, last time, I, I gave this definition from one of the Bible dictionaries in terms of what an altar is, and they described it as a structure used in worship as the place for presenting sacrifices to God or to the gods. And we were looking at some different aspects of altars last time, but what I want to look at very specifically this morning is this idea of the altar of the heart. Uh, when you think of the word heart, we often think of like the seat of emotions, uh, we, we think of the love thing, but when you come biblically to the idea of altars, sorry, to the idea of heart, heart is more than just emotions. Uh, biblically, when you look at it in the framework, the heart is the place that is made up of your mind, your will, your emotions, your desires. And we, we kind of cover this, uh, if you listen back to the earlier part of the series, back in episode 7, we were talking about loving the Lord with all of your heart. And what does it actually mean? It means more than just your blood pumping organ. It means even more than just your emotions. It means loving God with the insides of who you are, the, the, the depth of who you are, which includes your heart, yes, and your emotions, sure, your desires, your will, but also includes your mind, which is really fascinating to me. That when you say your heart, uh, they didn't have the word brain in the Old Testament, so they used the word heart. Isn't that fascinating? So when we're talking about this idea of the altar of the heart, then we're talking about that, that place in our lives that we put our affections, that, that we put our desires, that we, that we put our, that which we're chasing after, if you will. Uh, if you want to think about this as an idea, whatever we put upon our hearts, uh, whatever we focus upon in our minds, do you realize that we will actually turn our whole, disp- uh, our whole, what's the word I'm looking for, the direction, the focus, the desire of your life will all come in alignment with what you set upon your heart. Uh, for example, money. Uh, if you put money on the altar of your heart and money is the thing that you're going after, do you realize that all of your decisions and all of your focus and everything in your life will be driven by that desire? In fact, Jesus even says that in Matthew chapter 6. He says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Whatever you place on your heart, on the altar of your heart, your whole life will be directed in that courseway, that you will follow the desires of your heart. Now, I don't know about you, but I would look at this and go, okay, well, then I'll just put the good things in my heart. I'll just put Jesus in my heart and woo, things are going to be great. But do you realize the Bible gives us a scary definition or description of our hearts. Look, look at this list. And I put the, some of the Bible references down below, but the Bible tells us that our hearts are wicked, deceitful, evil, fearful, sinful, unbelieving, divided, and hard. 
uh-oh, that's a problem. Because if it's like, well, okay, wherever I put my heart, my whole life is going to follow that. Well, then I'm just going to put good things at the center of my heart. The problem is, is our heart is deceitful. Our heart actually desires something that it shouldn't. Our hearts are wicked. Uh, Jesus, talking about the heart, says this in Matthew chapter 15. He says, for out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, theft, false witnesses, slanders. These are the things which defile a man. Do you realize that sin is what comes out of the heart? So here, here's this idea that here, here's your heart. Whatever you put upon your heart, your whole life is going to follow that direction, that focus. But it's not as easy to say, well, I'll just, I'll just kind of, you know, scrub it clean and just put some good things there. Do you realize that your heart is wicked? Which, which means we need to repent. We need a deep transformation of our hearts, the altars of our lives. This is all over Scripture, uh, and I've been fleshing this out a little bit, but when we look at this idea of idolatry, uh, here's been my definition I've been coming to, uh, or that I've been kind of using. It's looking to anyone or anything besides Jesus to meet my needs. When you actually look at this idea of idolatry, and we've been unpacking this the last several episodes, idolatry is anything in my life, whether it's good or whether it's bad, that I actually put in a position that is trying to satisfy something in my life other than Jesus. And we do this with a lot of things. Uh, it, it could be with actual idol, uh, idols, like statue stuff. But in our culture today, we don't, we don't have the typical idols of yesteryear. We, yeah, there are Buddha statues. But we as a culture, especially American culture, we don't, we don't go to a temple and bow down, at all, uh, at, bow down before idols. We do. We just don't call them that. Uh, we do go to arenas, paint ourselves up, deck ourselves out in colors, and scream and hoot and holler. And we worship. Have you ever seen a sporting event? It's called worship. That is what they are doing. Good morning. Are you guys awake? <laughs> You're like, wow, I've never thought of this. Next time you, you watch a game, look at how people are responding. It's worship. It's idolatry. It's an obsession of the heart. I'm not saying all sports are evil. But the way that our culture has treated sports, it's idolatry. It's worship. You realize how the world today treats work and success and money and sexuality and entertainment. You, start, you can just start going through the list. All of this has become idols in our souls because we are looking and turning to these things other than Jesus for rest and for joy and for hope and for satisfaction. And we have put idols all over our hearts as the thing that actually is as the thing that we truly desire. Biblically, we are told that your heart is wicked and evil, therefore, we need a repentant heart. We need a transformation of our hearts. Uh, Jesus was talking to the Pharisees. The Pharisees were the religious leaders of their day. Uh, they knew Scripture inside and out. It's interesting how often religion or spirituality can become an idol in our lives. And Jesus is confronting the hypocrisy of the Pharisees. And listen to what Jesus says to, 
to these guys. This is so sharp. In Mark 7, 6, Jesus says to them, Rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites. <laughs> Just that, that alone is intense. But then here's the prophecy of Isaiah. This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far away from me. Sure, we're giving lip service to the reality of Christ. Sure, we're declaring the wonders of the gospel with our mouths, but our hearts are actually far from him. Why? Because we've actually placed something else upon the altar of our hearts. Could I encourage all of us, like David, when he says in Psalm 51.10, to have this prayer, create in me a clean heart, O God, renew a steadfast spirit within me, if you're going to realize that your heart is deceitful and it is wicked and it is, it is just constantly being pulled to the affections of this world, then what do we need? We need God to come and through the power of the cross give us a clean heart, a cleansing deep within us. Ezekiel said it this way in Ezekiel 11. He says, the Lord is speaking through Ezekiel and God says, I will give them one heart and put a new spirit within them. Get this. I will take the heart of stone, the hardness of their flesh, and give them a heart of flesh, a heart of softness. So no longer do you have to have a hard heart. No longer do you have to have a wicked, evil, perverse heart. You can actually have a new heart. Ezekiel 36, 25 says this, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean I will cleanse you from all filthiness and from all of your idols. Do you realize that is exactly what we need in the church today? And we, we have painted ourselves in the church as, well, yeah, I'm, I'm good, I'm religious, I'm spiritual, when all along we may have spirituality, quote-unquote, but the reality is our hearts are still far from the Lord. Have you truly given God the entirety of your heart? Have you truly set your heart as an altar before the Lord and say, will you not only cleanse this, but then make it an altar for you alone? Uh, you know the passage well, but Romans chapter 12 talks about this idea of a living sacrifice. Such a powerful passage. And I just want to briefly look at it. There, there's so much depth to this, and we're not going to go into the, a, lot of the, a lot of the depth. But I just want to give you a, a surface kind of a perspective on what Paul is saying in Romans chapter 12. Because again, it's going back to this idea that, that your life has an altar in it. And whatever you put upon that altar is going to drive the focus of your life. So what if Jesus was on the altar of your life? Was at the center of your heart? Look what Paul says in Romans chapter 12. He says, Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Do you see that he's using sacrificial language? He's using altar language. It's like he's using this language that not only the Jews, but the pagan world around him would have easily known. The whole Roman culture was set up in this idea of sacrifice. And so, you know, you go down and, and you would see the whole altar thing and you would see the animal being taken and killed and put upon the altar and, and given as a sacrifice unto the gods. And, and Paul says, do you realize that 
you are to do that with your life before the Lord. Let let me just give you, unpack a couple of these words here. Paul says, I urge you, which isn't just like, hey, can can I just give you an encouragement? The word is a really strong word. It means to implore, uh, exhort. It means to urge. It means just, it's this aggressive kind of a term. Hey, I implore you. Hey, I urge you. I exhort you. It's like he's banging on your forehead with a two by four. I urge you to do this. Well, do what? He says, by the mercies of God. Now, this is written in Greek. I, I get that. But this idea of the mercy of God is a central theme in, in the Old Testament. In fact, one of, one of the most exciting studies, if, if you just put this on your list of things to study at some point, is to look at this idea of hesed in the Old Testament. I, I began to study the idea of hesed, and it has radically changed just my perspective of God and the depth of intimacy that I have with him. Uh, the word hesed shows up all over the Old Testament. And the word is actually a very difficult word to translate. I think there's like 80 legitimate ways the word can be translated. <laughs> Which means that's a hard word. Because how on earth, I mean, 80 different ways you can translate this word. But when you get to the heart of it, some translations like the ESV says, often translates it, steadfast love. Uh, the New American Standard says loving kindness. But the idea is this, it's a covenantal overwhelming, unmerited love and kindness towards someone. In fact, the best definition I've ever heard of it uh, is this one. Uh, When the one from whom I should expect nothing gives me everything. Isn't that a beautiful thought? That here is God, and do you realize that you deserve nothing from Him? That He doesn't owe you anything. So when I come to God, I I shouldn't expect anything from him, and yet he gives me everything. And everything I need for life and godliness is found in Jesus, says Peter in 2 Peter 1.3. Everything you need is given to you. And so it's interesting, that idea of hesed, that idea of loving kindness, when it's brought into the New Testament, is often translated mercy. And so when you start walking through this idea of mercy in the New Testament, it's often a reference to the hesed of the Old Testament. God says, think about this, in Exodus 34, God says, I am a God of hesed. I'm a God of loving kindness. And I keep my hesed for thousands of generations. That God defines himself as this God who is full of mercy. He defines himself as a God who is full of this steadfast love, this covenantal love, this loving kindness. Do you realize that's how he responds to his people? That even when his people sin, even when they shake their fist in his face, while I was yet a sinner, Christ died for me. Do you know what you call that? Hesed. And so Paul is... is, He's using the Greek term. I get that. But I, I'm, I'm, I strongly think that he's pulling this idea back from the Old Testament saying, oh, hey, I urge you, I just implore you by the mercies of God, by this overwhelming characteristic of who he is, which is his loving kindness and his steadfast love and his, his overwhelming, hey, you don't deserve it, but he's going to give you everything. According to that nature and character of God, 
hey, I am urging you to do something. Well, Paul, what are you urging me to do? He says, I urge you to present, which is this idea of to yield, to offer, to put at someone's disposal. Hey, would you take, and the word is body, and what's interesting is when you look at the context of body, it's not just talking about your physical body, that's included, but he's talking about all of who you are. So yes, your physical, but also your inside stuff, your heart, your mind, will, emotions, and desires. He says, hey, would you take the fullness of who you are, and would you just present that? Would you offer it? Would you yield it? Would you make it avail- available at his disposal? Well, for what? Oh, Paul says, for a sacrifice. Excuse me? Uh, sacrifices are the things that we do when we kill an animal. Paul goes, ah, exactly. Yeah, would you take your life and would you offer it unto Jesus and say, do whatever you want with it? Take my life, let it be. Take everything. And may you take my life, would you take my blood, would you, would you spill and spin me for the kingdom of God? Whatever you want, I'm in. Well, that might be difficult. I'm in. Well, you might be martyred. I'm in. Well, you, you realize you're going to face persecution. I'm in. Whatever it costs, I'm in. Are you willing to offer your life unto Christ? As a sacrifice, which means everything is at his disposal. You can't say, well, Lord, I'll give you Sundays. I'll be very spiritual. I'll give you Sundays and Wednesday nights. That's not a sacrifice. A sacrifice is a full dedication. Have you given that to Jesus? Now, it's interesting, he gives three qualifiers for this idea of sacrifice. He says that this sacrifice is living, holy, and acceptable. The word acceptable means giving pleasure. So, he says that the sacrifice that you're giving is actually acceptable to God. That actually gives him pleasure. He says the sacrifice that you're giving is to be holy. Just as the sacrifices of the Old Testament had to be without blemish, without spot, without wrinkle, so too your life given as a sacrifice is to be holy. In fact, Paul says in Ephesians 1.4 that you have been chosen before the foundations of the world to be holy and blameless before him. Do you realize that God's big, deep desire for your life is holiness? And I know that holiness has gotten a bad rap in today's culture, but the word holy just means set apart. It means consecrated. It means unlike the world around you. So if the world looks at you and goes, wow, you're one of us, that's a problem. If the world cannot tell that there is something radically different going on inside of your life by the way that you talk, by the way that you think, by the way that you live, by the way that just the way you hold, your life is to be easily identifiable in this world because this world is to see jesus not you 
you have been set apart and you are unlike the world around you. You are different in every way. And yes, though you are in the world, the world is not in you. And you are a holy sacrifice. But you're also, strangely, a living sacrifice. Well, Nathan, you just said sacrifices die. Uh Uh-huh. And if you are going to be a sacrifice, you have to give the totality of your life at his disposal. Which means you've got to die. But it's a living sacrifice. Which is strange, isn't it? (laughs) I mean, it'd be almost a lot easier if if God says, I want to sacrifice. You're like, okay, here I am. And you just, and you're done. But as a living sacrifice, do you realize you are continually having to offer, offer up yourself as a sacrifice? This is a constant. And yet, strangely, there is a two-part reality of this because you have died. I mean, Paul in Ephesians 6, is, or sorry, Romans 6, is really strong on this. In, in Romans chapter 6, several chapters before our passage, Paul, Paul says things like this, Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into his death, so that as Christ was raised from the death through the glory of the Father, so too, what a phenomenal phrase, so too, we might walk in newness of life. Hey, you've died with Christ so that you can live in the newness of his life. He, he goes on in chapter, uh, verses 10 and 11. He says, for the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. Even so, consider yourself dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. So here you are, you are to present yourself as a sacrifice that is living. But knowing that you have died in Christ, therefore you can live in Christ. And you can be a living sacrifice, but it's because of the fact that you have died in Him. And though you are living, in other words, you're not walking around as a dead person. Praise the Lord. (laughs) You're walking around as as a person who is alive And yet that living person is continually offering themselves up as a sacrifice to say, Lord, do whatever you want with my life. Here is my life. Take it all. I am yours. Well, you realize that's going to cost you? I'm in. You realize that may cause death? I'm in. You you realize that might be uncomfortable at times? I'm in. You realize it may cost you everything? I'm in. It's going to take all of your time. I'm in. It's going to take all of your finances. I'm still in. Because there's not much there you can take. You just take whatever. (laughs) So everything in your life is offered. Is that true about you? Now Paul looks at this whole thing that he says, I urge you, according to his nature, he is so good, he is so merciful, he is so kind. And because of his nature, I am imploring you, would you just give yourself to him? Do you know why Paul is urging you according to God's mercies? To his character? It's because if you don't know the character of your God, you won't entrust yourself to him. But if you know who your God is, do you know how easy it is to say have everything? I will go wherever you want. I'll do whatever you want. I'll pay any cost you want. Why? Because I know him. I know his nature. I know his character. And it is worth everything. Everything. If you know him. 
And if you don't know his character, you're not going to be willing to offer. Which means you've got to get tight with him. Now, Paul looks at this whole thing and says, do you realize, he uses this, he uses this term, that this is your spiritual act or spiritual service of worship. Now, it's interesting how this is translated. I give you some options here. King James says, this is your reasonable service. The New Living says, this is truly the way to worship him. NIV says, this is your true and proper worship. ESV says that this is your spiritual worship. The Christian Standard Bible says this is your true worship. New American Standard says this is your spiritual service of worship. The Net Bible says this is your reasonable service. Here's what's interesting. That word for spiritual service of worship, the word spiritual, is this funny Greek word. And it's actually where we get this idea of logical. It's actually reasonable. It's true or genuine. Paul says, you know what your true, genuine, reasonable, logical worship is? Giving yourself to him. Do you know what what worship really is? Jesus, have everything. Go crazy. Do whatever you want with my life. And he says, do you realize, according to God's character, according to God's nature, it is just logical to give yourself fully to him. I mean, it just makes sense. It's just reasonable. I mean, this is true. This is genuine. If you want to have a real life, give it away to God. Isn't that awesome? So listen to this again. Romans 12, 1 and 2. Paul says, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present, offer your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to him, which is your spiritual, your logical service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. You have an altar, but your altar has been tainted by that which is evil and wicked and perverse. We have all given our lives over to sin. We've all put things upon our altar in place of Jesus. We've all said, sure, if we're in the church, we'll say, yeah, yeah, I'll have Jesus plus I'll go after this. I'll have Jesus plus whatever it may be for you. Is it possible that God actually wants to cleanse and transform your life so that He and he alone has the totality of your focus, of your heart. You know these verses, but Paul talks about this idea that you are a temple. You are the temple. Your heart, if I may press the illustration, your heart is the altar. Look at this, 1 Corinthians six nineteen. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. Do you realize that this life known as you is actually not yours? He actually wants you to give it back to him. And he wants to use you as his dwelling place, as his vessel for use in this world. But it needs to be pure. It needs to be holy. It needs to be set apart. So look at this, 1 Corinthians 10, 31. Whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do, 
Do all for the glory of God. Is it possible that God can actually be at the center of your life? That no matter what you do, not just the religious things, but everything in your life, religious, what we simply call secular, you know, like your job or, or whatever it may be, you know, like eating, hanging out, playing disc golf, whatever it is that you do. Is it possible that everything in your life could actually be worship? Is it possible that everything in your life could actually be given unto Jesus and say, Lord, would you, will you use every moment, will you use every fiber of this being to bring you glory on this, on this planet? When the world looks at me, could they just not see me? Could they see you? And may this world know once again that you are still the God of the universe. Colossians 3.17 says, Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. We're told in 1 Peter, you as living stones are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood. Get this. To offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Do you know what your life is? Your life is a temple. And you are to be offering continual sacrifices up to him. Spiritual sacrifices. Lord, here, take my life. Hebrews says that through him then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of lips that give thanks to his name. Wouldn't it be neat if every moment of your life was a continual sacrifice? sacrifice of praise unto him that you're just living in this awe of worship and thanksgiving and praise and and whatever whatever you did whether you ate or drank or whatever it is that you do everything was just wow lord here i am i just praise you i just thank you psalm 51 17 after david prays create me a clean heart listen to what david says he says the sacrifices of god are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart, oh God, you will not despise. Is it possible that God wants you to come into a position of humility, of contriteness, of brokenness, and say, Lord, I have idolatry. There are things in my life that should not be. And it's not that even all of them are wicked and evil and perverse in the normal sense, but even good things can easily become idols of our hearts. Would you be willing for the Holy Spirit to put his finger on anything in your life that doesn't belong and for you to offer it? Let him demolish everything in your life that's not him so that nothing takes first place so that he and he alone would be preeminent in your life. And then you become a place of sacrifice and worship. And what if the entirety of your life was a living sacrifice being continually offered up to him? If I may go back to an earlier study, we were walking through the Shema of Deuteronomy chapter 6, and I kind of gave, gave my amplified version of the passage. So it's like I took all the study stuff and just kind of jammed it into the passage uh, and put it in some parentheses. Th this, is, this is what Moses commanded the Israelites. This is what we're still commanded to do, by the way, which is to love God with everything. So let me just read this. It says, Shema, or hear, O Israel, Yahweh is our God. 
and Yahweh alone. And you shall love Yahweh your God with a covenantal, voluntary, passionate love where you worship and become more like the one you love most. And we are to love Him with all of our heart, meaning our inner person, your mind, will, emotions, desires, and intentions. You're to love Him with all of your soul, meaning the whole of your life. In other words, all that you are physically and the inside stuff. And with all of your might, meaning everything that you have, your talent, your ability, your possessions, your money, your time, whatever. Is that true in you? Do you truly have God at the center of the altar of your heart? Is He the thing that you love the most? Is He the thing that is actually bringing your life into subjection? Is He the thing that, because whatever you set your heart on, your life begins to follow in that direction? Is that true that Jesus actually has that position in your life? Or is it something else? Because if it is something else, that's called idolatry. And we need to repent. And our hearts are deceitfully wicked. Would we allow Jesus to cleanse our heart and our mind and to renew our spirit so that he and he alone would be preeminent, that he would be the focus, that he would be the love of your life and be the sole thing on the altar of your heart? We need this. We need him. Let's pray. Uh, Lord, we do need you. Lord, I, I don't, I don't want to give the lip service like the Pharisees and yet not give you my heart. I don't want to go through the religious activities and the religious motions and no one to stand up and no one to sit down and know the right things to say and, the, and yet miss it. Lord, like Paul urges, Lord, would you somehow enable me to offer, give you my life as a sacrifice that is living and holy and acceptable to you? Which means, Lord, I, I have to be all in. I can't hold anything back. Lord, Lord would, you, would you take every thought? Would you take every motive? Would you take every desire? Would you take every action? Would you take every word? And would you bend it under, under the authority, under the subjection of Jesus Christ? And may you reign as king upon the throne of my life. May you and you alone be that which is on the altar of my heart. Let me have no other affection besides you. Would you have first place in my life? And Lord, I just ask that that you would so stir your church, that you would so cleanse your bride, that we would throw off the idolatry that we've allowed inside the church, and, and that we as your people would be pure and holy and spotless before you. But the only way we have an, that option, the only way that we can even pull that off is we need you. And so, Lord, we just freshly, freshly invite you. We ask for revival. And yes, we want revival in the world. And yes, we desperately want revival in this nation. And oh, we're craving revival in our church. But Lord, you've got to start with a revival in our hearts. Do not let us be conformed to the world around us. But Lord, transform our hearts, our minds, our lives. Press us, conform us to the image of Christ. 
And may our lives be given to you as worship and spilled and spent for the King and the kingdom however you desire. Lord, we give you all the praise and all the glory in your precious, powerful name we pray. Amen. Daily Thunder is a listener-supported production of Ellerslie Discipleship Training. At Ellerslie, we are laboring to rouse the Church of Jesus Christ out of its lethargy and build brave-hearted Christians for such a time as this. Daily Thunder episodes are released every day, Monday through Friday, from our campus in Windsor, Colorado. And our weekly sermon is delivered live at 9 a.m. on Sunday mornings with a delayed live stream available at noon Mountain Time. Go to ellerslie.com forward slash daily to get all the details. Thanks for listening.